Hi there, and welcome to the Homestead Education Podcast. Do you have a homestead, farm, or just dream of a rural life? This is a show to help you and your kids grow your own food and grow as a person. I'm your host, Cody Hanner. I'm a homesteader, homeschool mama six, and small town enthusiast. I was raised by an old school rancher and blessed by the grace of God to have been exposed to so much of what rural life has to offer. Join me every week to talk about homesteading, homeschooling, and growth with a homestead education. Hi, everyone. I have a special guest today, Brandon Sheard from the Farmstead Meatsmith. Him and his wife, Lauren, and their eight kids live on a homestead in northern... Northeastern Oklahoma. Northeastern Oklahoma. Thank you. I didn't write that part down. (laughs) They offer uh, classes and a membership on family-style meat husbandry and traditional methods of butchering. Um, I also have one other special guest today. I have my husband, Ron Hanner, joining us because, as I've mentioned in my previous podcasts, we are working on putting together our meat room here on our ranch And so that is something he's spearheading. So we thought this would be a great one to do a couples podcast. So thank you, Brandon, for joining us. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, we, uh, like you said, we live in around Tulsa. Tulsa is the closest city uh, here in Northeastern Oklahoma. And uh, we, we do small scale animal processing, which sounds strange, but it's, um, it's very rare. You know, all of Mm -hmm. our meat is harvested by three enormous companies, like, like all of it, like 99% of it. Uh, And so we actually majored in like meat science and safety and stuff. So this is definitely my wheelhouse. I know exactly about those three companies. Yes, I bet you do. (laughs) We could do a whole podcast on that. Right. Because I don't know anything about them. I've been so spoiled. I've always raised meat on in my backyard, so to speak. And harvested it myself, at least for the past, uh, since 2010. So that's, that's when we started Farmstead Meatsmith. And it was really, um, Lauren and I together, we realized it was our calling to, to both teach people how to harvest their own animals and to preserve their flesh on a small scale, but then also just to offer the service of small scale slaughter. So I have a mobile slaughter truck and I can run around and kill the animals on farm where they're most comfortable and where they belong mm-hmm. while they are living. And then uh, bring them back to my little shop here and process them for the farmer to come pick up later. And we realized that that was kind of our calling when people kept calling us on the phone. That's what I say to, to do that because mm-hmm. the demand is huge. It's enormous Oh, for, for small scale processing everywhere across the whole country. So we're hog farmers. We have nine sows and we I mean, I can't fill my wait list fast enough because I can't find enough butchers. Yeah. Even though we have a great mobile butcher that comes here, he just can't keep up with the demand. Yes, they are all spread very, very thin. And that's every state in the country. And I've been to a lot of them just to teach uh, farmers who are in that position where it's like either zero processing is available to them. That happens. Um, or they're just tired for, you know, of the six month wait, you know, they'll call or 18 months, I should say, that's more like what it is now. They'll call the local processor and say, Hey, I need my pig slaughtered. And he's like, okay, see you in two years. (laughs) That's not going to (laughs) work. Yeah. Or we have people calling and asking for piglets and they're like, 
you know, we have to get on the, we're on the wait list for in a year. Well, you have piglets ready in three months. I'm like, oh, I'll give it my best, but we live cover. So I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was kind of the initial thing that got us into, um, creating a business farmstead mm -hmm. basement there was clearly a demand but honestly it's just a pretext an excuse for me to have a butcher shop so that I can feed my family well and myself so it's mostly it's mostly that because once you once you slaughter a home-reared creature and you process it simply very simply you know no complex chemicals or temperature controlled environments you just you do it as our ancestors did it. And then you consume that food. You, it, 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 is, it is so delicious. It's on a different level. Like it's not just different in, kind, in degree, but in kind from anything you've ever eaten before. And limiting yourself to what you can produce and harvest transforms not only your kitchen, but the whole order of your life. And um, it, it brings it back to something that is more ordered, more on the human scale and less attached to the excesses of a more urban existence. So that's, that's been, that's the real reason it's, it feeds our bodies as well as our souls so much better. Than Absolutely. I, I know how wonderful it feels after we're done butchering. Um, we both grew up hunters, so we have, you know, processed our own meat for years, yeah. but you know, in young adulthood, we just, you know, we were in college, young families, those types of things. And we just bought from the grocery store. You know, I lived hours away from the family ranch. And so there was no, it wasn't easy to get meat. Yeah. Unless I went to the grocery store. And when we switched back to growing, you know, probably 90% of our own meat, whether we butchered ourselves or with our um, butcher in town, it is just such a difference. Yeah. Yeah, it's really amazing. And um, I find that it, it, it especially conduces to raising children, you know, because it, it puts a natural limit. I think it's a little easier to uh, have temperance and be virtuous, you know, if, if you're kind of limiting yourself mostly to what you can produce. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're not so tied to the consumer mentality, which is so strange that we at the grocery store, we can buy bananas. And, you know, in Idaho, you can buy lemons. This is very strange. We have infinite variety at our fingertips at the grocery stores, like we've never mm. had before. Um, it's very unnatural. And, and yet our cooking has never been poorer. It's the worst. We have infinite variety, limitless. It's so easy to go to the grocery store that you actually have to do extraordinary effort to not do that and to grow your food instead. Um, and well, it definitely helped. Be, we moved 45 minutes from the closest grocery store. We definitely had to look at how we produce our food because, I mean, you run out of bread. It's not just a dollar for a loaf. It's the yeah. you know, hour and a half drive to town and then you get there and you're hungry. So. Yeah. Exactly. And that's where the good cooking, that's where the culinary arts are born. It's from limitation. Mm -hmm. You know, when you've limited yourself, like, man, all we've got is a slab of bacon and a, a bunch of kale. And that's all we, and some salt and some lard. And um, when that's what you're limited to, because that's what you grew in the grocery store, like you say, is 45, 50 minutes away. That is where you create some amazing meals. You realize that fewness and truth 
in your meals are what make them delicious. Not not just dizzying array of variety and you know bananas and tomatoes from Argentina. Right. I will. <laughs> we we had that happen last night. I said, "Good effort, family," because the baby turned off the crock pot. There you go. So, <laughs> I thought the crock pot was running all day long, and he was actually at a friend's house butchering. And he comes home, and he's like, mm, "That smells good. What's for dinner?" And I go look, and there's a bunch of, you know, raw ribs. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Get creative. So everybody jumped in and made something and we put it all together. And I told everybody great effort. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So one of the, um, you know, I'll get into some of our uh, speaking engagements and things like that later. But one of the reasons I was really excited to have you on is I think there's a lot of talk out there about how to get started butchering and, you know, maybe just go buy, you know, your primals and give it a shot and everybody can pick up a grinder at the local hardware store or whatever. But we were wondering what would be the best um, investments or bang for our buck for kind of people that are comfortable with butchering and ready to take those next steps. Yeah. Um, well, uh, shamelessly, I would have to say our class uh, Ooh, yeah. that we offer. I um, love but, it. You know, I was, I'm going to jump in there real quick. Yeah. yeah. I know you guys started up here on, uh, in Western Washington. Yes. And I actually found you guys just prior to you moving. Oh, no. and, and I'm of course up here in North Idaho. So now if, yeah. for me to come to your class, which I'm going to, I'm super excited about it. I got to go halfway across the country now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm sorry I, was, about that. I was a little, little bummed, but it was like, okay, I, I understand you're, we, where you're coming from we do have an excuse my uncle and cousin just moved to the Tulsa area so <laughs> oh great they're right yeah. here then yeah my uh cousin's wife got a job at the softball hall of fame so oh okay cool yeah she she's yeah. Uh, she's 40 <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah i would say for those people that have already done a little bit you know maybe even they have a grinder and they've done hunting you know, that's, we get that a lot too. uh, people in our classes that have done hunting that want to take it to the next level. And I feel like, um, a lot of it, it's it, a class would be awesome, but even the way that I orient the classes and even the way we orient the, the meat, the education on the meatsmith membership, uh, that we host online, it's all oriented towards cooking. It's really simple. And it seems like for some reason we've had that separated, you know, like there's, there's kind of the foodies and the chefs over here. And then there's the slaughtermen and the farmers and the butchers over here. And those are different realms. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, that separation is artificial. And that's one of the biggest problems with our entire food system. And it's not that way in other parts of the world. Like in Europe, the slaughtermen are very traditionally very culinary they actually adorn the carcasses the skinned carcasses to look beautiful and uh sort of pre-prepping them for how they are to be cooked so they have a culinary eye it's all ordered the final cause of all the harvesting and the farming and the husbandry is to cook it well is to bring it into the kitchen and serve it to people and so it is not like uh something that's out in left field to become a better butcher by learning how to braise meat well. In fact, I would say the best thing you could do to learn how to be a good butcher is to learn how to braise, which is what your crock pot does. Mm -hmm. You know, braising would just be before the crock pot. It's more like, 
like heavy cast iron pot with a lid, low and slow heat with liquid, you know, wine or stock or water or whatever, and a tough piece of meat and some vegetables, let it simmer. And the reason why that is the best education in butchery is because there is no part of the animal that does not taste good once you have braised it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's crazy. To, there's every single part, and I'm talking like feet, ears, you know, on pigs, anything, any part can be braised and mm -hmm. it will be delicious. And that is, um, that is relevant to learning how to butcher because one of the biggest efficiencies in butchery is waste. We throw stuff away. We throw away. I mean, you guys know, we throw mm -hmm. away 50 to 60% of hanging weight is trimmed off and yeah. not, it's not for human consumption. That's unthinkable. It's unbelievably wasteful. And the only reason you would retain all that stuff is if you know how to cook it and it tastes delicious after you've cooked it. Right. And that's what the braising does. Well, I mean, I wish braising was taught more. I yeah. have recently learned how to do it myself. And one of the biggest feedback I get from either all the products we sell off the farm or from fellow hunters or uh, hunters' wives is, I don't know what to do with it. Yes. Or I only like it cooked one way. And I was like, get out your Dutch oven and let's have some fun. And, yes. you know, I always like refer back to, you know, uh, like Hispanic and Mediterranean food. If it doesn't taste good, there's some great spices that are just gonna rock your world, you know? Yeah. 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 It's so true. And I, I feel like, especially for intermediate people who have done a little bit of meat processing, they tend to get stuck in ruts, you know, hunters, like it's all you know, uh, what do they call it? Like meat sticks, you know, and jerky and then salami that the, that the mm -hmm. butcher will make. And buck steaks and gravy. That's there the you only, go. They think like you just got to, you know, bread it, fry it and put gravy on it. There you go. Yeah. And so even just taking the minor step of cutting up your own deer and not taking it to a butcher and mm -hmm. maybe don't grind the whole thing. Yes. I mean, ground venison is delicious and wonderful and hamburgers have a very prominent and honorable place in the universe. Uh, but if you leave more of it as, you know, whole muscles and try to cut steaks out of the back strap and maybe leave the haunch, you know, a little larger or seam it out and learn how to braise or roast those things rather than grinding it all. I mean, mm -hmm. that would be, that would be a huge education in butchery itself because you are learning not just where to cut things, but why you start to have an understanding of as you're cutting, you're thinking, this is going to be delicious because I'm going to cook it this way. And that is the proper motivation for why you're cutting there. So the whole, the culinary education, I think is, that's just, that is the final cause. That's, that's the key to taking it to the next level. That's definitely one of the things we noticed in your class. That is, you took each step that you were eating what you were butchering as you went. Yes, definitely. I don't think I could cut an, cut up an animal without eating it. Like it, it would be so discordant. It would be so depressing if it's not ordered towards food. And if I'm not tasting it as I go, then it's just, uh, why am I doing this? This is hard work. My hands are cold. I'm tired of this. <laughs> you know? right. Oh yeah. We butcher with our six kids all sitting around the table and we've heard every complaint there is. There have to, yes. there has to be promises of like jerky afterwards or something. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> and I mean, we immediately get something going in the dehydrator so that there's the treats yeah. afterwards. <laughs> yes. Something I don't have to stand there and cook the whole time. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
So as far as like equipment, what equipment do you see being necessary or important? Yeah. I mean, I, I know I beat this one like a dead horse, but it's really uh, a sharp knife is so essential um, because then a lot of equipment that people think they need is substituting for a sharp knife. Yeah. They think they need a lot of things, but they don't, their knives are just dull. So then they get all these other apparatuses. Uh, but if your knife is sharp, you'd be shocked at the things you can accomplish on a carcass. Like you're okay. Whatever you can imagine, you can materialize with a sharp knife. If your knife is dull, though, you can do nothing. You cannot <laughs> materialize any cut, any any picture you have for parting up the carcass. It will not happen with a dull knife. So um, I think the the number one step is to learn how to sharpen knives, and. Okay. Um, and then, then butchery becomes a delight. Then you're not fighting against your primary tool the whole time. Oh um, yeah. I mean, we were blessed that we were gifted a lot of equipment with the property we bought, yeah. but yeah, it's been a little bit of a nightmare making sure everything runs right and that everything is sharp. Yes. Yeah. And I, I always tell people, I mean, I just direct them straight to the pro. Um, Murray Carter actually is in Idaho. Write that down. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a knife maker. He's uh, okay. He's in your neck. He's in northern Idaho somewhere. That's where we're at. Yeah, and so he is a, a super accomplished uh, knife maker. Um, you know, you can buy like a mammoth petrified mammoth tusk handled knife from him for ten thousand dollars, or you can learn how to sharpen knives from him, and that's really what you want. And he put up a video on YouTube. It's free. Now it was a DVD and I used to sell the DVDs back when those used to exist because I'm such a believer in his method, but it's blade sharpening fundamentals by Murray Carter. It's two hours and 40 minutes long. Okay. So make a pot of coffee, you know, (laughs) but but I will link all of this in the show notes because this is gold right here. Yeah. Watch that one. And the, the reason I pick his in particular is because he holds to the Japanese orthodoxy on sharpness, which is uh, way beyond Western ideas of sharpness. We tend to try to build knives that are durable and sharp, and we always favor durable because we use them very poorly, like to make <laughs> paint cans and stuff, which you should never do. <laughs> but the Japanese are like, no, no, we're just going to cut things that are softer than steel with our knives. <laughs> and so they make them crazy sharp. Like it's really next level. And, and um, but his method is very easy because he doesn't require fancy jigs. You don't even have to know the precise angle at which you're grinding the knife. It's all by hand. It's all freehand. And it's all a coarse stone and a fine stone that, and a little okay. bit of time. So the, it just takes a little time investment. But um, once you get it, uh, it's very, and it's very simple to get it. It changes your life forever. So definitely. Because he knows homesteaders, all we have is time. Right. Exactly. <laughs> And doing things the yeah the the tedious way because in the end you can buy jigs, um, but you are abdicating some of the skill of knife sharpening to that implement, but also some of what you want for the edge. That implement does not know what you need. You need a crazy acute edge. You need one that is not like this, but like this. That's the difference between sharp and dull, and you want super acute. And to achieve that, you, you want to do it freehand. And um, it, it totally, it changes everything. Skinning a, a, a lamb is like a pleasure, you know, with a sharp knife. Wow. 
See, I, this is I've been battling this one for ages. I mean, ever since a, a kid deer hunting, and yeah. just recently in the last year, I've been trying to find videos and products and what's going to give me that good sharp knife that's going to last. You know, yeah. last for I mean, just that process and that animal, and then I can go touch it up. Yeah. Haven't found it yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, we don't have to get too much into the woods, but there's definitely two uh, mentalities, two approaches to knives in the butchery world. One is the, the, the American style, which is like stainless steel cutlery. And that has an edge that is serrated. So it's, it, you, you, you would see that it's serrated only under a microscope. It's got little teeth on it. And the reason it has teeth on it is because you wear the sharpening steel at your side always, you know, those rods, mm -hmm. and it's studded with diamond abrasives. And so what butchers are doing is they're cutting, they're cutting, and then they grab their steel and they whack their knife on it. And it's not really sharpening the knife, it's just putting new teeth on it. But those teeth have no structure. So they dull quickly. You know, after five or 20, 10 strokes, it's dull, but that's okay. You just go back and you put more teeth on it and you end up throwing that knife away pretty quickly. And, um, I, and, you know, and I question the, the safety of, uh, abrading a knife that aggressively and then putting it right into meat. You're definitely getting metal shavings in the meat. Um, and then there's the Japanese approach, which is no steels involved. It's just a coarse and a fine stone. And you put in the sharpening work before the butchery day. And so when I do it and I have, I just do one knife and I'll go out and I'll slaughter four pigs with one knife. And then I'll come without ever resharpening it. I never hone it. And that's, you know, Impressive. I'm shaving and eviscerating and doing everything. Um, Cause I'm not scalding and scraping or uh, skinning the, the hogs. And then I'll come home and I might just hone it at the end of that day. And then I'll butcher all four of them without honing it again. Wow. And that's because it's super acute. And I don't abuse it. Don't open paint cans with it. Um, and uh, and it's a very hard carbon steel as opposed to a stainless steel, which is soft. So he, he goes over all that in the video and it it's life changing for sure. That's that's huge. <clears throat> I was happy to to butcher a hog completely. Well, it was already slaughtered, hanging, uh, cutting, cutting, split in half and then. Did the whole butchering on one knife yesterday. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> yeah. But to to handle four on one, that's that's yeah. highly impressive. I'm excited to learn the methods there. Yeah, it's the way to go for sure. <clears throat> so we talked about your class a little bit. What a what what does your course look like in compared to your class? Yeah, the um oh, what does my course look like mm -hmm. compared to the class? Because, I mean, the class is obviously very hands-on and you're yes. cooking and those yeah. types of things. What yeah. is a course bringing about? Yeah. Uh, well, the courses that I offer are usually, you know, through someone else, uh, through, you know, going to a conference somewhere and demonstrating mm -hmm. um, or, or doing it at another farm where I don't quite have the setup to do like an intense hands-on thing. Okay. And so I just switch those more into observational, you know, it's more of a demo and that way we can get 30 people there and they can all watch and ask questions and I can bring people up for, you know, uh, you know, to feel things, what it's like when you have a good scald versus a bad scald and how it should feel when you're scraping and all of that, but to really do a hands-on course. And by that, I mean like undiluted, 
hands-on. Like nobody's just standing and watching. You know, if you come to the class, um, you go home knowing how to do it. That's the point. That's the goal of the class and confident to do it. So those are like three days long. We do those here uh, at my homestead here in uh, in Oklahoma, and they are um, they they're hands on, and so they're limited to eight students. So it really limits how many people we can have. Um, otherwise, it just gets too diluted. So the between eight students, we do two pigs. Um, if it's a sheep class, we'll do four sheep. Um, and we can, the students do everything. Uh, they do the whole process over the course of two or three days, depending on the course. Um, I, there is an exception. I'm doing a farm uh, at sub edge farm in uh, Farmington, Connecticut. I'm going to do a hands-on course there. And so that will be small and it'll be intimate. We're going to do two pigs. It'll be two days. And we can do that because they have a butcher shop. They have a space, you know, that where we can That's make helpful. it. Small. Yeah. And that'll be in September. And that'll be a good one too for the northeast but yeah so that's the main differences is it's really how much hands-on just means fewer students demo we can do as many as can watch nice nice um so you were talking about you know definitely braising as a way to cook more or to consume more of the animal what are some other options that may not be as mainstream yeah i mean the really there are it's kind of funny because they are, they're totally mainstream because there's only two other options like in the universe <laughs> to cook meat. There's three ways. That's mm-hmm. it. It's just braising, pan frying and roasting. I, well, and I then, that's true, but... <laughs> yeah, that's it. And then, you know, we, I would, you know, we can say there's barbecue, but barbecue is just another form of slow roasting. Mm-hmm. I still put that in the roasting category because really it's just cooking meat with the application of dry heat. That's roasting. Pan frying is direct heat, you know, right on a skillet coming in contact with the hot surface or the hot grill. You know, mm-hmm. you could even do, you could call uh, certain kinds of barbecue that too, when you're pan frying sausages or chops on the griddle. Um, and then braising, like we said, is in a pot with liquid and that, so even like cooking the most weird cut, a pig trotter, you know, all these esoteric cuts, all you've got to know is three recipes, braising, pan frying and roasting. And you can cook all of them. There's no part of the animal you can't cook. When you so, like, would you eat your stew? Yes, stew. Yes, stew is a a braise. Well, I mean, like, like you know, you mentioned ears. I was thinking, like, what would you eat the ear? Like, would you put it in a stew? Would you make jerky out of it? Like, what would you do with the ears? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, the it's actually fun to do those in one thing. So frequently, we'll do ears and pig feet, the trotters. Mm-hmm. In one pot and uh they need to be braised because they're tough there's no meat on them it's all collagen mm-hmm. and connective tissue um no you know muscle tissue that we think of when we think of meat and so they just need to be simmered for a while to even become chewable and that's the braising where it's just liquid heat to break down collagen into gelatin so that we can actually chew it and when you do that, you gain savoriness and sweetness. Like collagen is the, that's where the flavor is. That's the flavor bomb. So mm-hmm. the toughest pieces, the toughest cuts, those are the most flavorful because they've got so much connective tissue and fascia and tendons and ligaments. That's where flavor is. And that's why you need to braise. So we put the, the ears, the trotters, even the tails of pigs in a pot, 
stock, a little bit of wine and simmer it for about an hour and 20 minutes. And now they're nice and tender. Now you can eat them and you could simmer them longer. It's just kind of fun to stop it before they totally melt because you want it to still look like a foot because that's fun. You want to, <laughs> it's fun to eat a foot. And then you can take all those things out, the ears, the tails, the trotters, and you could then roast them or pan fry them to crisp the skin somehow. You don't have to, but it's fun and it's nice. So you could put it on a baking sheet and a broiler, you know, and it would crisp all the skin. And then while that's happening, you can melt a little bit of, uh, put in a saucepan, pour in some soy sauce and some honey, some ginger and garlic and stir that around and heat it for like a little teriyaki thing. And then uh, pull them out of the oven and they'll just be piping hot and spluttering and crispy on the outside. And uh, then you just, you gnaw the meat off of the bone. And it's not really meat. Again, it's collagen and skin. If you've done a proper pig harvest, the skin will be intact. And it's just, it's like uh, chicken feet. And that's one of our favorite meals as a family. It's so, so delicious. Might have to try that one when we start butchering. He's looking yeah. at me. I wouldn't know how to cook that. <laughs> yeah, just the simmer. And you don't even have to do the pan frying or the roasting part to crisp the skin. It's still really good just as a simmer. Um, and then you could get more into methods of preparing meat that are oriented towards refriger uh, preservation before refrigeration existed. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get into things like confit and brines and dry salting meat. And the cool thing about those traditional pre-refrigeration methods is that they not only preserve the meat from spoilage, is they, they actually make it taste better. They actually make it ripen. And they end up being um, sort of a way to do some of the prep time of the meal in, in advance, you know, like after right on butchery day, you've done a lot of prep and then you can go and pull from that for quick meals um, for months, even years after that. That's actually our next um, project is to dry cure bacon. Yeah. That you know, I, I feel like <clears throat> with where our world is today, so much, not so much, everything that you guys teach has just been thrown in the back burner. Like the bacon we buy at the store, that's not, that's not cured bacon. That's, that's flavored meat. That's right. Yeah. Um, we've we've kind of lost touch of of all the old ways and that's why i'm so excited to get in and dive more into your guys's course and your methods and ways because what we need right now and for ever to come is be able to cure and process and and store these products that we're harvesting off of our farms without having to have refrigeration all the time yeah you know yeah. it's we've become so dependent on the electricity that we're so lucky to have right now yeah that it's not going to be there forever yeah right it's not and the, <laughs> the thing about it too is it's not just like uh prudent you know not only is it prudent to be able to preserve meat and prevent it from spoiling without the luxury of electricity i say it's also like a key to the good life that's the crazy thing about this is it it is the most prudent thrifty thing you can do but also the bacon that you just dry salt and then you smoke with hardwood from your property that's going to be the best bacon you have ever tasted like it's not even going to be close it's going to be on a different order of flavor even if you over salt it a little bit you're still going to be like wow 
this is different. This is so good. You're not going to be able to go back to like what you said, the merely flavored bacon of the grocery store. It's going to be like, what is this bland? Nothing. Get this away. You know, it's not fit for a creature with an immortal soul to consume. We need (laughs) dry salted home smoked bacon. That's what we need to eat because that is the good life, but it's also super prudent. That's the way to go. It it makes you more independent. Absolutely. Not even from like a prepper standpoint we lose yeah. power up here if there's a strong wind i mean exactly for days yeah yeah and you could eat well during those days right <laughs> yeah. i mean we have a few systems in place like we have a cistern uphill from us so yeah. you know we still have good water when the power is out and but without fail if i put eggs in the incubator the power goes out every time yeah <laughs> at like yeah. day 15 yeah <laughs> oh no <laughs> yeah yeah and bacon is a great way to start too something else i kind of i we're homestead education or she's homestead education you think of homestead you think of the past you don't think of right now modern stuff so much you're you're thinking of the past the the old ways that got us to where we are now yeah and you know like i said i think your guys's method of processing and butchering and just the entire harvest the animal from start to finish is exactly that the old way yeah you know and we need to as homesteaders we need to understand how to use those methods methods to process now yeah i think so and and like you said not just for prepping but because it is a good like there's a lot to be gained there yeah um it orders your life you know, a better, it requires uh, this strange move where you have to, you have to put up this artificial limitation. It's so weird that it, it's like the hard thing. It, it takes extra effort to not just go to the grocery store, right? You actually have to choose consciously to limit yourself to at least most of what you can produce um, rather than our ancestors who were limited that way just by necessity. And consequently, you know, I, I think that I can't remember who it was. I feel like it was Tolkien or someone, but he said, you know, all of the, the comforts and the conveniences, they dull the edge of human nature. We become like dull knives, (laughs) you know, we're less adept at doing the things that we um, are made to do that fulfill our nature. And um, when you are bounded by those limitations, which in our case today in, in, in America, they have to be artificial. We have to put up those limits artificially almost, you know, because uh, they're not real yet. Um, but you find that you, you slide into the natural order. What our technology allows us to do and our convenience is to go against the natural order and not pay for it, you know. We can kill our pig in July and we can refrigerate it, not a problem, you know. That would be unthinkable before walk-in refrigerators. You know, you, you had <clears throat> yeah. to wait till St. Anne's Day till it was winter. Then you can harvest your pig and do all your traditional curing. Um, and so just in that, that simple foregoing of that technology, you actually slide into the natural rhythm of the year, you know, into the planting, the growing, the harvesting, and the preserving throughout the calendar year. And um, that that kind of order supplies i think that's really what peace is you know saint augustine said it's the tranquility of order is when you're in that in that rhythm that is suited to your nature 
that's that's peace right and that that makes so much sense yeah oftentimes we get up here folks are like well how do you get through winter how it's just so depressing and so miserable how do you guys do it well we're there's, busy there's yeah. other things that need to happen in winter time other than just being outside enjoying the sunshine exactly you know, that's, that's when our animals are processed that's the best time for a lot of different things it is yeah i mean Absolutely. even we take advantage of the modern option of freezing when we're super busy in the fall or traveling for conferences and stuff and then we come back and yeah. spend our winter canning yeah so Absolutely. it's kind of you know still hitting that in the middle for what our life is but that's when a lot of our real work gets done yeah or even that's when we research how we're going to spend the rest of our year <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely that's when the to-do gets list gets really long <laughs> really yeah. long. yes <laughs> we're yes. making some big changes this year so our oh yeah really long <laughs> yeah uh we our homestead got really locked in and then transitioning to some new business and stuff our homestead kind of went I don't want to say to the wayside because it's still functioning yeah. but it could be functioning at such a higher level that we're excited to make those changes this year yeah yeah that's our meat room oh nice yeah mm -hmm. yeah that's always a challenge it's a it's a juggling act because we still have the, these obligations to the system and the modern world that we live in that it's mm -hmm. You can't just totally retreat, you know, uh, because of a mortgage or whatever else is tying you in in some way, you know. So it's always a discerning. It's it's it requires prudence to to try to navigate that and be in the natural order, and but then be able to exploit the the things that you need to uh, for the good of your family that the the modern context has to offer. Yeah, well, and you were talking about. Um just, you know, butchering your own meat brings in the order. What I love about it is my kids seeing that full circle. Mm. Yeah. I mean, all the way from, you know, I mean, the other day, like our teenage boys come in and they're like, Hey, the, the boar was, you know, mounting Ruby, the mm. red pig, uh, go ahead and mark that on the calendar. And then they start like counting off, you know, and like, they know when she's going to Pharaoh, they, start talking about, oh, we're, this is going to be our first purebred Herefords. I can't wait to see mm -hmm. what they look like. I can't wait to taste them. I can't, you know, and yeah. it's the whole, they're excited that they're going to be getting finished right when the cow comes in the milk. So then they're going to be getting finished on yogurt and yeah. <laughs> like just to see their excitement at 14 years old, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's as opposed to uh, whatever, you know, bizarre and probably nefarious entertainments the city would have to offer them right that uh, do the exact opposite rather than sharpening their nature you know and mm -hmm. making them track time and anticipate and like oh we've got to do this work in advance and it's a little harder and then we get this payoff much later because that's how we don't freeze in the winter you know they have that whole order um that's you can't get that you know in an urban setting at all mm -hmm. that kind of formation which, which again, I just think it's it's the natural um, environment in which to learn to be virtuous, to learn patience and hard work and uh, and all of that. Absolutely, it's difficult I mean, to do that in the city. We're yeah, we're so thankful that we live where we do. Where I mean, I think pre-COVID, forty percent of our community homeschooled, and that didn't even include the Mennonite families. Wow. Yeah. 
and it's a uh, very farmer heavy here uh outdoors off-grid and yeah. wherever we go our kids their friends you know they're exposed <clears throat> constantly to if it's something that we aren't doing on our homestead somebody else is and we go to someone's house to visit and they aren't like oh you kids go play it's okay kids go feed and everybody just jumps in and does the family chores on whoever's farm they're on yeah that's great and yeah they're getting to see that that that's how people can live and used to live and you know i don't want to say that we should create artificial environments for that in the urban settings but i just wish that mm. more people would embrace what they could yeah yeah that would be better for everybody i think mhm i mean we even there's with the modern homestead movement there's you know you can be you know it's a lot of it's a state of mind you know like mm. You, you, if you choose to, you know, educate your kids at home and grow all your own herbs, like that's a step, that's a step towards self-sufficiency. And we celebrate mm -hmm. that. But, you know, my goal with the homestead education is to bring that full circle with the kids. Yeah. So it's no longer, oh, mom's little hobby on the back porch of growing herbs. It's if you want your food to taste good, you're out here doing herbs too. Yeah, definitely. You know, just kind of and I, I think that's a big step with parenting right now with, like you said, with the nephrous entertainment that's out there. Yes. <laughs> Some of this, I mean, even with our kids, you know, at 14, 17, we, we allow, you know, they have cell phones, like they have to, mm -hmm. it's a safety thing at this, you know, or we choose this for it to be a safety thing when they are mm -hmm. alone with like our toddlers and stuff. Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff they find, I'm just like, no, no, we're yeah. not watching that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, you got to get that stuff out. It's just, uh, it's it's interesting too. There's, you hope, uh, in addition to providing, I, I'm, I'm fully in favor of sheltering too. I was homeschooled from second grade all the way up. So I'm straight up like, yes, shelter the kiddos, <laughs> 100%. Right? No apologies. <laughs> uh, because innocence is while, you know, and I think our world today, we deride it evil. It's actually the soil of virtue. If virtue is just a good habit, which it is not just, you know, it is virtue is a good habit. Mm -hmm. um, innocence is how they habituate to the good. Whereas when you, when you violate that innocence and you expose them to the evil, you, you're tearing away at a good habit. And when they're habituated to the good in the context of innocence, um, then when they're older and maybe more independent, they, they will have a natural habitual revulsion for the evil, you know, mm -hmm. that that will be theirs. Now it's their virtue. It's, it's not just a result of their context, you know, that you provided for them in that innocent context. Um, and they, in the absence of all those temptations to just, which is all that the entertainment is, it's just temptations to viciousness. Um, they, they can actually develop those habits almost, almost passively. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's so gentle because it's, it's in the context of a safe home where it's all true, good and beautiful. And that's what they can draw from to form themselves such that when they encounter, you know, uh, the false, the bad and the ugly, they recognize it. They know what it is and they won't be wooed by it. Absolutely. I, some of the evils are so easy to be drawn into and yeah. to just not have that be where it's an acceptable place in their lives. They don't yeah. even, 
they're uncomfortable with it when they're older rather than drawn to it. Yes, exactly. So one of the questions I asked everybody towards the end of our interviews is what does keep growing mean to you? Keep growing. Well, I think of my children because that's one thing they do very well is uh, they are growing. <laughs> and um, I, so the, the immediate unpremeditated thing that pops into my head when you say that is uh, to keep embracing life. And I, I find that on our, both in your family and on your farm, um, have lots of children. I think that's part of the natural farming order. And I think it's good. <laughs> Just like, uh, you know, it's always crazy. It's always so, um, it's crazy. It's crazy to have lots of children. It's crazy to let your pigs just go ahead and reproduce, right? That is so crazy. And people who don't farm don't quite realize <laughs> how crazy it is just to let animals do their thing <laughs> and make more of themselves. You right? know, very soon you are you are just drowning in sheep. You are drowning in pigs. You're drowning in cows because they do that so well. Um, and so, yeah, I always think just, yes, do it. And in the case of the livestock, uh, get get a really good culling policy and know how to cook and eat all of those things <laughs> to maintain the health of your herd, but let it also be very fecund and fertile and just keep growing in that Absolutely. way. We have so many people that are like, you know, when are your pigs going to be due? I'm like, I don't know. They're yeah. going to be due whenever because the board just lives with them. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I actually, I do pull him for about a month after our local fair. And then put him back in, and then it makes it where we have fair piglets ready. Most of the time. Most of the time. <laughs> Most of the time, yeah. Yeah, that's great. And that kind of, it's a little more loose. It, there's still order there that, that mm -hmm. you, you know, you're imposing and, and you're bringing to oh, bear, yeah. especially with culling and everything. It's very orderly, but it is, it's very open to just creating more pigs or whatever the case may be. And you find that that's how all, that's where the land race breed came from anyway. That's how you get the best epigenetics pass from generation to generation we keep doing this weird hyper controlled reproduction of livestock where it's like we get semen from the one bull that has the beautiful glossy photo on internet and he mm -hmm. is the sire for, for all the cows you know um and it doesn't work which way. means you don't get a localized breed you know with each generation your pigs are getting better on your land you know acclimated and they they do pass those things on to their to their offspring absolutely and you know for those of you listening culling is a really important practice i have a whole guide on that if you want to go download it because one of the biggest as a educator for homestead businesses one of the biggest ones is how much money is just going out to those animals that really should be cold and yes. culling doesn't always mean just going and putting them down right there's a lot of different options for that, yeah, that like bacon for example <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean butchering selling changing their jaws I mean, yeah. we have um, a cow that she never stays in milk, but she will adopt other babies, you know? So, I mean, same she, with one of our pigs, one of our pigs too. They, they have, you know, <laughs> we breed her at the same time as our sow who has 16 piglets, but she only has four piglets. I can split those piglets and she will always take them on. Where if I leave 16 piglets in with the one sow, she's probably going to lose a third of them. Wow. There you go. So there's a really, culling is a very important practice that I preach on quite a bit, actually. Yeah. So. yeah. And I'll link that in the show notes. So 
Um, I came across Brandon. Uh, be- well, I he was on my radar before, but the reason I chose to have him on is that he's going to be speaking at the Modern Homesteading Conference that's in Coeur d'Alene this year. That's being put on by uh, Melissa K. Norris and Katie Milhorn. And uh, that's, it's just, it's a great conference to have in the Pacific Northwest. I think it's the first one, especially of this size. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll both be speaking there. Uh, what are you going to be covering it for your speech? I am going to do a traditional pig slaughter and butchery and curing. So it's it's going to be the whole narrative from living pig to portioned and then cured, not just for flavoring, but for preservation in any context. Wonderful. Will this be like you're actually going to be butchering there and everybody sees it? Or you? Oh, so yes. it's going to be a full demonstration. It's a full demonstration. Yeah. Yeah. You stay in the pig. booth. Don't be wandering no, off. No, 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 no. <laughs> you need to hire some extra help because I'm not going to be at your booth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be great. That's going to be wonderful. So um, where can everybody find you online or anywhere else? Yeah. Yeah. They can go to farmsteadmeatsmith.com. And uh, we have a podcast also um, called, what's it called again? A Meatsmith Harvest. Okay. <laughs> and so say and, he listens uh, to it. I don't have time for podcasts anymore. I know. <laughs> I used so to hard. love them. <laughs> yeah. There's so many good ones out there. Uh, there's, you know, I can find when the, the, the tedious chores I can usually put on a podca- podcast, but yeah, those two places uh, would be great. Yeah. Wonderful. Meatsmith.com. Well, everybody make sure that they really go and support Brandon. I love what he's doing. I love what he's teaching. This is something that we need to be bringing back to our farms. Uh, Stop sending everything out for the canned product. Yes. So thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today at the Homestead Education. And I hope that I have given you something to think about this week. To help others find me, please comment and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. You can also follow me on Facebook at The Homestead Education and Instagram at homestead underscore education. Do you have questions that you would like answered or just want to say hi? Please email me at hello at thehomesteadeducation.com. Until next time, keep growing!